Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 12th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Probably the most unequal, the most aristocratic of all post-industrial early 21st century companies full of either obscenely rich people or incredibly poor homeless people. It's a a city which no longer has a middle class. And this issue of the future of capitalism, the future of the market is one that's dominated my show over the last couple of years. This morning, I interviewed Roman Krasnarich, the the Oxford-based futurist, a public philosopher. He has a new book out, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World. He's trying to fix all the same problems that we're dealing with, unequal opportunity, the environmental catastrophe, the crisis of democracy, and so on and so forth. And I asked him at one point, I'd also had... um, Tim Jackson, another UK-based economist on the show, has written an interesting book called Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Whether or not Krasnarich believed that we could reform capitalism to make it fairer, and Krasnarich ultimately said no. If we're to leave a better world for our ancestors, we need to move beyond capitalism. Uh, And interestingly enough, I think his position is reflected in the work of his wife, Kate Raworth, who has... Uh, as one of the pioneers of a new kind of thinking about economics called donut economics, which replaces the market with something more collaborative and more communitarianism. One of the crises, of course, of capitalism is it's creating so much inequality that it's generating enormous amounts of populism. Uh, That populist outrage, you can see it in the headlines every day. It seems to break out all over the world from the Yellow Jackets of France to the Brexit demonstrations and most recently uh, today in Canada of all places where uh, truckers are demonstrating. Apparently the bridge has just been cleared, uh, but we have the same images of angry people who, who are not really able to articulate their rage, but are indeed nonetheless rageful against the system. They are the the raw materials of populism which so disturb many of us. Today we are indeed talking about how to, and I'm borrowing the title of, of, of my guest's book, Reclaim Populism. Eric Protzer, Harvard-based uh, researcher and analyst, is the co-author of Reclaiming Populism, and I'm thrilled that um, Eric is joining me from his home in Boston. Eric, welcome. Reclaiming populism, how can we begin to do it without necessarily getting rid of capitalism? Or perhaps, let me start, let me rephrase the question given the conversation I just had with Krasnarich. Can we reclaim populism within the framework of early 21st century capitalism? Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, first of all. And, uh, you know, that's that's an interesting question. I want to frame it in terms of the argument of the book, which I think is necessary to introduce first. The argument of the, the book Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back Disenchanted Voters, is that 
the key populist eruptions that uh, we see around the world in recent years, like Trump and Brexit, Marine Le Pen, uh, the Gilets Jaunes, uh, forces in Italy as well as elsewhere, those kinds of populist eruptions that change the national character of a country so that it's not the same before and after, those are down to economic unfairness. The problem is not income inequality or wealth inequality. It's not immigration. It's not social media. The problem is that people see a rigged system in which they feel like they can't get ahead on their own talents and efforts. And they feel like instead that the system is rigged so that success is the product of family origins and elite machinations. Um, importantly, you know, you pose this question of is it possible to reclaim populism within the framework of 21st century capitalism? Uh, I would say not only is the answer yes, the only option is to go forward with uh, capitalism. And well, the, I don't know if every, everyone would agree with you, Eric, that the only well, answer certainly uh, well, uh, Chris Norwich wouldn't, Kate Raworth wouldn't, so many guests on the show haven't. I take your point, though, about the inequality. Um, we've done lots of shows about Tocqueville, the great analyst of America, came in the 19th century. And what he found in America was a place which was democratic, which contrasted vividly with the aristocratic system in France. But as you suggest, today America is a deeply entrenched aristocracy. Is that the core problem with contemporary America today? Is that what is fueling populism, the aristocratic system, meaning that if you're born into a good family, the chances of you going on to have a very successful job are incredibly high um, and the reverse is true. Or to put it more brutally, more vulgarly, we had the wonderful essayist Dale uh, Marriage on, on the show uh, last year. He has a new book out, Fucked at Birth. Um, basically, most Americans are indeed fucked at birth, aren't they? Well, okay. First of all, I'd like to respond to your, your point about, you know, is there any option other than capitalism? Certainly people argue for other things. I think they're wrong. I think that uh, the, the core, the, the core uh, you know, if you look at the most successfully populism resistant countries in the world today, uh, among the high income countries, they are capitalist countries. It's places like the Scandinavian countries, like Canada and Australia and New Zealand. And we'll speak about the Canadian uh, the events in Canada recently, I'm, I'm but sure. As, uh, Eric, and we can get to this later, is, mm. uh, uh, as, as um, Hillary Clinton so famously responded to Bernie Sanders in their 2016 uh, debate uh, for the presidency, uh, when Bernie was going on about something about Denmark, Hillary said, well, I love Denmark, but we can't be Denmark. So we always hear these stories, well, we could be like Denmark, but only Denmark can become Denmark, can't we? Well, okay, sure, but there's lots of other countries that, that aren't just Denmark that follow that pattern. Think of Canada and Australia, large settler English-speaking countries uh, that are perhaps better comparison points for the United States. So I, I think that's a, a kind of uh, a weak counter-argument uh, from, from Bernie Sanders there, that it's impossible to achieve high social mobility and economic fairness in a, a large country under the framework of capitalism. There are clearly counterexamples other than Denmark that uh, are working reasonably well. So let's get back then to, to your argument about recl in, in reclaiming, and, and, and I keep on making the Freudian error of calling it reclaiming capitalism, which in a sense <laughs> could also be titled. Uh, but your book is Reclaiming Populism, uh, how economic fairness can win back disenchanted voters. What exactly is economic fairness, Eric? 
Fantastic. So we spend actually an entire chapter of the book delving into the evolutionary psychology of what economic fairness means. But the way we talk about it in the book, we talk about it as a set of values that most people in high income countries today hold. And it's the sense that opportunity ought to be equal and reward ought to be according to, uh, according to contribution. And importantly, that is very different from simply whether outcomes are equal or unequal. And the consequent lesson is that people actually aren't particularly sensitive to simply whether an outcome is equal or unequal. It really depends whether it's fair. So, for example, you could have someone who makes a marvelous new invention that, say, I don't know, saves the world or makes everybody better off. Uh, and most people feel that it's fine to reward that. It's fine to reward people that contribute productively and healthily to society. That's a very good thing. And that's capitalism working at its best. But in contrast, there's also unfair inequality. And that's the kind of inequality uh, that is really bad that you want to crack down on. So, so let's talk about that unfair inequality. Mm -hmm. Has Is the aristocratic system in America, is it as radical radically unequal, radically unfair as the French system of the 19th century. We had, for example, we had so many shows about the problems with the so-called American meritocracy. You're at Harvard, the ground yeah. zero for that. We had the Yale professor Daniel Markovitz on the show about, and we've had Michael Sandella yeah. about the unfairness of, of, of the American meritocracy. Um, we had, um, I've talked to... Um, uh, Richard Reeves, who had a wonderful book about dream hoarders, how the American upper middle class is leaving everyone in the dust. It's not just the 1%, is it? It's not just Davos mm. man. It's the top 15 or 20% of Americans, many of whom indeed voted for Biden, who are hoarding the wealth, the opportunity in this country. Well, so first of all, I, I, I would say that, uh, you know, those arguments about, about meritocracy from Markowitz and Sandel, I think what they really miss is that America doesn't demonstrate the failure of meritocracy. America is failing at meritocracy. And there are other countries out there like uh, Canada and Australia and the Nordics that are doing much better on that. And you can quantify that in terms of social mobility. So America, you're absolutely right, is failing on social mobility. If you're born into the bottom of the income ladder, it's very, very difficult to make your way up. There are all sorts of reasons why that is that we go into in the in the book. Uh, but that's essentially the impetus for, for populism in America. It's that you have two generations of brutal economic unfairness where people like, feel like success does not depend on talent and effort, that success is a product of nepotism. The solution, though, isn't any any form of simply, you know, overthrowing the system and replacing it with some sort of equalization or, or communism or communitarianism, because history has repeatedly proven that that sort of thing, that sort of arrangement just doesn't work very well at a large scale. Do you have uh, some examples of that, of, 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 of examples of that, of how it doesn't work? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly look, look at, at the sorry history of 20th century communism. I mean, you, you had in, in various countries over and over again. Uh, you know, mass famines and hor horrendous concentration of uh, yeah, but that, that, that's an age-old debate. Um, and uh, we had uh, Leah Upi, for example. She has a wonderful new book out. The LSE professor called Free. Even though she grew up in communist Albania, that was profoundly unfair and unequal, she nonetheless remains a socialist. So socialism is still viable. 
Well, it depends on your definition of socialism. I mean, what do you what do you, what do you mean when you're talking about socialism? Are you are you talking about something like what uh, you know Denmark practices, what Canada practices, or are you talking uh, about something like what the Soviet Union practiced? Well, there there is a third model as well. There's more of a social democratic system, I guess, perhaps the Danish system or the German system. Um, but let's move on to. Uh, your notion of what needs to be done in the United States. Because I take your point that perhaps the Canadian or the Australian models uh, or the Danish models work certainly better than the US or the Mm -hmm. UK. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you change the US? Because you're certainly not the first or the last people to speak about how many Americans have been fucked at birth and how this is generating Trumpism and anger and hatred Uh, We even had um, on the show, I've had uh, uh, another Canadian writer, um, Stephen Marsh, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, who says that there is an inevitability of civil war in America. Even uh, Barbara Walter came on the show. She's an American political scientist. She's nervous about civil war, a civil war of two Americas. So it's the two Americas that you're concerned with. How do we make those two Americas one America? Yeah, certainly. So uh, part of what the what separates this book on populism from a lot of other books on populism is that it has a, a huge amount of material that's devoted to policy prescriptions. So, you know, one one element of what's important is that you have to identify the things that you actually need to fix so that you're not wasting time in reform efforts that are completely irrelevant. And that's something where we draw on the diagnostic method from where I work, the Harvard. That sounds a bit medical, Eric, a diagnostic method. Well, that's exactly the point. Yeah, it's like you have to think of the economy almost as a patient and it exhibits these symptoms and you have to make a catalog of what those symptoms are and you have to diagnose what are the, uh, what is the underlying... What what tradition uh, is your work in? Is it in the the Comtean technocratic tradition of, of treating society as if it's a... A, a scientific organism. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I would put the book neatly into one category. You know, it's. Well, you're it's, always in categories. Everyone who says they're not in a category is e- either ignorant or not willing to address the question. You're part of some <laughs> well, tradition or other, aren't that's, you? That's quite. That's quite the charge. I think you know something that, for example, uh, other people that I've talked to have have uh, said that that they like about the book is that it touches on so many different categories of thoughts. Uh, you, you know, it draws not just upon economics, but uh, political science and uh, prescriptive public policy. It, it goes into all the, these uh, different domains. So, I, I mean, you know, one element of it certainly is uh, to, to address uh, and figure out, well, what is going wrong with the U.S. and, and how you, can you fix that? We do that for the U.S., the U.K., Italy and France. We diagnose the reasons for low social mobility in all of those countries. Right. So, and you explain, I guess, the rise then, if you're doing Italy, the rise of Five Star yeah. Movement. Exactly. Uh, you look yeah. at, obviously, uh, Brexit in the UK. Um, yeah. uh, you, I assume you touch on Trump. Um, yes. Uh, and what's the conclusion, again, that, that the people voting for populism are the people who sense this economic injustice? That's what they're angry about? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, for example, there's there's a quote that we used to headline one of the chapters from a 2016 swing voter in the U.S. who ultimately opted for Trump. And I think this really nicely encapsulated the problem. He, he wrote that, I see my tax dollars going to handouts for others who didn't work as hard as I, I did, and I can't afford my health care. Everybody is being taken care of but me, and I feel left out 
and it makes me feel that I want my country back. So essentially that voter is very concerned about the unfair relationship in the U.S. between contribution and reward. And, uh, you know, essentially the thesis of the book with regard to the U.S. is that he's not alone. Now, if you want to fix that in the U.S., uh, po relevant policy prescriptions, you know, surround uh, increased affordability of education, better access to health care. Yeah, well, let's get to that. Let's 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 fill yeah, in sure. the blanks with the system. Um, we did a show recently with the journalist Christopher Leonard has an interesting book about how QE, the yeah. policy of basically printing money over the last 15 years, has resulted in enormous benefits to the rich. Then we had a show with John Abramson, an expert on big pharma, suggesting that big pharma is resulting in more wealth for the rich and the exploitation of everyone else. Would you agree with people like Leonard and Abramson that everything in the system's rotten, everything's broken, to, 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 to quote Bob Dylan, um, from, from, from monetary system to the healthcare system to the political system to the educational system, everything is rooted in, in, in your notion of economic unfairness in America, that is. Yeah, I, so I don't think I would go so far as to say absolutely every element of American society and the American economy is uh, afflicted by, by those problems to an extreme extent, extent but there are, there are a lot of uh, issues. And I, I think that um, things like uh, big pharma and the lack of competitiveness in the uh, health sector, the lack of universal health care, which you know, the U.S. is a huge outlier on, that's certainly a huge part of the problem uh, with, with regard to uh, quantitative easing. I mean, that's, that's part of a almost a larger discussion about loose, uh, persistently loose monetary policy. It is a rotten system, uh, you know, to, again, to borrow some wonderful language from Dale Marriage. Um, half the country or more than half of Americans are indeed fucked at birth because of the policies of the central government, because of the, the structure of healthcare and education and all the rest of it. We are talking with Eric Protzer, the author of Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back disenchanted voters, the kind of voters who perhaps who vote for Trump and who demonstrate on bridges and roundabouts in France. Uh, we are going to be back after the break, Eric, and we're going to talk specifically about how to fix capitalism. So hold on, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. 
and on their Lit Hub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Eric Protzer, the author of Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back Disenchanted Voters. We talked about the problem of economic unfairness, particularly in America in the first half of the show. Eric, let's talk about fixes. Where do we begin this? Okay, well, the very first thing is that it's really important to focus on social mobility in particular. We quantitatively prove in the book that low social mobility is a persistent correlate of the geography of populism throughout the rich world. Things like income inequality and social media and immigration are not. And then in order to address that, we flesh out a set of policy prescriptions uh, to, to address social mobility in various contexts. And that so, so let's just be clear. I'm trying to yeah. sort of translate what you're saying into everyday language. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I'm speaking um, a bit like an academic. Yeah. <laughs> so you just got to give what what you want to do is give people more chances. Social mobility yeah. means yeah. that you're not fucked at birth. Yeah. You have a chance, independent of what kind of family you're born into. Exactly. We break down the aristocratic system that has emerged in America. So how are we going to do that? Right. So the, the, we argue in the book that social mobility, as it you know, is successfully practiced in a lot of countries around the world, like Australia and Canada and the Nordics, rests on two pillars, equal opportunity and fair, unequal outcomes. And in turn, there are a whole variety of different policy categories that support those things. Uh, you can think of things like uh, education and childhood health care to ensure somebody can become productive in principle, then things like housing and transport infrastructure so they can physically connect to where they need to be to you know, get a job or start a business, uh, the vibrancy of the economy as a whole, which relies critically on a private sector with market competition. Uh, you know, protection against discrimination, both in law and in culture, uh, protection against economic cheaters through things like regulation and taxation in the justice system so that you don't have to compete against monopolists and people who undercut safety standards. There's a whole variety of things that support social mobility under those twin pillars of equal opportunity and fair unequal outcomes. So what you're really saying is there is a, a, a fair capitalism, a capitalism, a market based economic system that can work. If America or Britain, for that matter, becomes what, like Australia or Canada or Denmark? Yeah, more in that direction, certainly. And how are you just, you know, we talked about Richard Reeves' excellent book, Dream Hoarders. Are you just dreaming? Because that's not going to happen in America. How would it conceivably <laughs> even begin? Yeah, so I mean, it would it would take a very different uh, political stance, I think, than what, say, the Democrats are, are practicing right now. Uh, in the conclusion of the book, we, we sort of summarize the main lessons for how we think, uh, you know, uh, the, the Democratic Party or other parties that are interested in reforming capitalism to make it fair can do that. Uh, a couple of key things are, you know, one, get off the bandwagon of condescending social justice because you're alienating the people who are already feeling like they've been unfairly treated. So no more stuff on racism or critical race theory or any of this stuff. Well, don't go overboard on it is the thing. I mean, there certainly is discrimination around the world. And just as importantly, there's unequal opportunity around the world. But you can solve that in a way without demonizing people. 
And that's the critical thing. So, you know, just get off that bandwagon. Start so is this book, um, Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back Disenchanted Voters, which came out, uh, which comes out of a, a Harvard Institute, the Growth Lab, um, is this really a handbook for democratic pollsters? Is it for progressives or is it for everyone? Well, it's, it's for everybody who is interested in uh, rescuing democracy and rescuing fair capitalism. I mean, in the, in the U.S., you know, it, it, this probably, you're right, it doesn't just apply to Democrats. If you're a moderate Republican, this book is also for you. It is really aimed at a policymaking audience and a pollster audience, I guess you could say. We had, uh, and I mentioned this to you before uh, the, the show, we had Gabriel Zuckman, the great French economist on the show recently, mm -hmm. uh, actually not so recently, a couple of years ago, just at the beginning of COVID. On the rise of inequality is one of the researchers, along with Thomas Piketty, who I know you know, who is mm -hmm. being very critical of the kind of aristocratic system that's emerged in America. Zuckman is a strong advocate of a radical restructuring of taxes. What's your position on that in terms of reclaiming populism? Do we need to radically raise taxes? Well, it, it, I'm going to give the classic economist answer. It depends. There are some elements of so You're avoiding the question. You're avoiding the hard issues. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. Let me answer. So it, it, one element that, that we argue for in the book that does need reform, for example, is uh, capital gains tax. We think it's absolutely absurd and completely unfair that uh, rates of taxation on labor are so much higher than rates of taxation on capital gains. There's, there's no evidence, well, no convincing evidence in our view that uh, increasing the rate of taxation on capital gains actually would uh, be a huge detriment to the economy. The capital gains rate, for example, in the US used to be considerably higher even a few decades ago. That's one element where we think it is really important to implement that reform. In contrast, we think that billionaire taxes of the kind that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, suggest are, are really bad ideas. Uh, they're, they're not very practical. Lots of European countries used to have wealth, these kinds of uh, wealth taxes, and they got rid of them because they're just so impractical. But Denmark doesn't have Jeff Bezos. Denmark doesn't have... Um... Uh, you know, actually, it's, Buffett, funny, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. It's funny you mentioned that because actually Sweden, had the, the amount of wealth in Sweden that's held by billionaires amounts to a larger share of GDP than in the U.S. But people have much more positive attitudes towards billionaires in Sweden. And if you look at the data, it's because in the U.S., the way billionaires accrue wealth is through things like monopolies and rent seeking, uh, you know, things like basically that, that a lot of people would consider unfair. Whereas in Sweden, it's much more through like starting HMN, H&M or Volvo, a competitive multinational. Uh, so again, it points toward the need for a, a fair system of taxation. It's not just completely soak the rich. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, again, centering in on that question of how do you support social mobility? So, so, so fixing this for you doesn't really mean a radical change in the tax system. You want the estate tax to change, but basically... The wealthy would still what pay 35 40 percent well the, the the wealthy the wealthy should uh you, you know they should pay their fair share which i i think in a lot of countries they're not currently there needs to be certainly an increase in capital gains taxes i would say even in the top marginal income tax rates um there needs to be you know more done to avoid uh you, you know escaping taxation taxation through shifting profits overseas but if you have a solution that's just soak the rich 
then the problem is is that well actually lots of people really want to be successful like that's the that's the whole point of the american dream and for many uh, other people around the world their aspiration is for themselves and their children to be successful too everybody wants to be successful so the point is not to eliminate the possibility of success the point is to make success fair again so the point, if it's to make it fair again, we need a, ra a radical reform of the education system. Um, oh, in the U.S. and in, in uh, well, yeah, as I said, we had Richard yeah. Reeves. Uh, his Dream Hoarders is a really important book about how the American middle class has rigged the system, particularly in terms of economics. And uh, people like Daniel Markovics have underlined that. How do we change the education system? Well, I, I mean, part of the huge problem with the education system, uh, for one, is just the sheer unaffordability in the U.S. of any sort of post-secondary education. I mean, if you look at the data for uh, student debt or, or the cost of you know, tuition in the United States for any kind of education beyond high school, even vocational education, not just university or college education, it's through the roof compared to, uh, to other not, not community college. Community college is very affordable. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Seriously, compared to other, other high-income countries, it's, it's not that affordable, really. I mean, I mean I, I'm actually Canadian. So, uh, you know, if you compare the cost of, of uh, community college in, in Canada versus America, very different. So who's going to pay for this? You're going to have, I mean, again, there's it's a huge debate in America in political terms. It's inconceivable that any of these things are going to happen. Yeah, well, that's part of the challenge is that it's stuck in a cultural phenomenon where in the U.S. people feel like, you know, any sort of government intervention generally is bad. People confuse equalizing outcomes, which, you know, I certainly would argue in the book is bad, uh, with equalizing opportunity, which is a very good thing. And the consequence is that uh, people aren't willing to raise taxes to a certain level that's necessary for these kinds of vital public goods. And, you know, it doesn't mean going full overboard with a huge socialist system. It just means getting to a level where, say, you know, you know like Canada or Australia are. Um, yeah, we keep on repeating that, but it's not convincing. Um, <laughs> we, we, we had Victor, uh, we've had lots of shows about Victor Orban and the rise of populism. How are you going to satisfy people's populist nationalism and this sort of this 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 glee in defining oneself in ethnic terms. How does that happen in in your yeah. reform? Well, that that's you know we argue in the book that actually that's greatly exacerbated by economic unfairness because it it partly starts with the problem of if you've been treated unfairly economically with regard to not having equal opportunity and not being rewarded according to your contribution that causes you to turn into your community and essentially look for common protection. It causes more xenophobia. So part of that is a result of this economic unfairness. And that's why it's such a critical issue to solve. We've had so many shows about the consequences of this. Um, uh, and uh, Eric, uh, we had Fiona Hill, for example, on the show talking about how America and Russia are alike. I think that's true. Um, we had uh, Jim Tankersley, uh, sorry, Jim Tankersley on the show, uh, How to Revive the Middle Class in America, very prominent New York Times economics journalist. And most of them ultimately fall back, not on becoming like Canada or Australia or Denmark, but going back to something in American history, either going back to the New Deal or going back to the Great Society of Johnson. Or, uh, what's your take on that? Can we go back? Can we try to make America fairer by uh, returning to the principles of the New Deal or of great society? Well, I, I'm, I will, I'm sorry. For, for one, you know, I, I, 
I'm sorry you find my position on that unconvincing, but I find that position really unconvincing. We're talking about. Well, I'm not saying they're right, uh, uh, but yeah. Well, I, I don't I don't find it convincing. That's 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 you're talking about a, a kind of economic condition that was a very long time ago with much less brisk technological change, with much less globalization. The reality is that you need all kinds of supports in place so that people can navigate the kind of disruptions, the kinds of economic shocks that have happened over the last couple of decades. I mean, arguably, maybe you need to soften the incidence of those uh, shocks as well. But, um, you, you know, for example, you can look at the, the way that the China shock played out in Canada versus the U.S., where in Canada, actually, the initial, the initial size of the shock was a lot worse. You had more people proportionally losing their jobs. But then in the United States, there was no statistically significant evidence of job recovery for those people. In Canada, the rate was 60%. And the reasons for that have to do with the fact that there is a social safety net in place so that if you lose your job, you don't necessarily lose your health insurance. So you're not going to go bankrupt for medical debt. You can have some form of unemployment insurance so that you can get through a dip in the economy. Uh, it's easier to retrain. It's more affordable. And there are more uh, because, again, because of the uh, greater access to education, there's a, a better industrial ecosystem with more educated people creating more opportunities in the economy. So I, I, I don't find those other alternatives even remotely convincing. I think really, you know, we're talking about a 21st century economy. The best thing you can do is look at who's doing best in the 21st century economy. And it is these countries like Australia and Canada and New Zealand and the Nordics. That's the model. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you didn't need to, to write a book. I mean, everybody knows that. What about innovation? <laughs> uh, innovation when it comes to technology. We've had a number of shows about universal basic income in the United States. Is this another innovative fix? America should be a leader, Eric, not a follower of little countries like Canada or Denmark. <laughs> well, as, as a Canadian, I find that a little bit in, insulting. Well, it was um, meant as an insult. Don't worry. Yeah, well, there, there you go. Uh, you, you run an interesting show, Andrew. Uh, with regard to UBI, I, I don't think that's a very good idea, personally. I, I think that you know, uh, first, it's it's so expensive that it would mean you have very little money left over for all kinds of other social programs uh, and, and public goods that, uh, you know, aren't supplied through UBI. I mean, if, if you give somebody a bunch of money through UBI and then say, uh, you know, the transport system is, is terrible or, or the housing system is terrible, how are you going to fix that with, with private money? Realistically, you have to invest in certain public goods. And if you put all your money in the basket of UBI, you don't have enough left over to do those other critical things. Your, your, your book and your work is highly, as you say, policy orientated. Yes. What about just throwing our, our lot in with the Chinese? Uh, we've had lots of shows about <laughs> the efficiency of the Chinese system. Carl uh, Kishore Mabubani, for example, has been on the show a lot of times. The, the Chinese technocratic model seems to work. Certainly, the Chinese system seems fairer. They can just kill the rich if they choose to. Oh, um, my God. I, no, that's complete. I'm sorry. That's completely wrong. And and uh, that book, is, you know, the position in that book, I find it ludicrous. Who, uh, Mabubani? We explain why. Yeah, well, it's, 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 you know, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm personally quite bearish on, on the prospects of, of the Chinese state. You know, there, there's definitely an argument for a, what academics call a del developmental dictatorship, that if you have an authoritarian system, maybe it can get you to middle income status. It, there's no evidence of any country really in history getting it to high income status. And the state of social mobility, for example, in China is awful. 
it's much worse than in other uh, high income countries today, you know, even worse than the US. So I, I do not see that as a, a model to follow. And, and, you know, there's all these other problems with the political. Well, uh, okay, I'll take that point. I, I mean, no, I, it's, and it's I agree with you. It's an awful yeah. system. Yeah. yeah. The last place I want to live is, um, is China. Um, yeah, exactly. We talked about Peter, uh, Tim Jackson's book uh, earlier about the post-growth. And in his book, he reminisces with great nostalgia about Robert Francis Kennedy, RFK, Bobby Kennedy, mm-hmm. who, who had an ideology which, at least in, in Jackson's language, was one of post-growth, an innovative idea of recognizing that capitalism needed to be tamed are there figures from the American past, perhaps an RFK, who one can look back to and develop um, creatively their their ideas, their work? Because it's not enough just to say you can become like Canada or Denmark. You've got to you've got to be rooted in some sort of indigenous tradition. Yeah, I mean, you know, if if I, I get what you're saying, just from the point at least of just. Uh, if only just to sell the, the the idea and and there there at least I mean I think but that's what uh, politics absolutely. is selling ideas I yeah mean, no that's, that's what you're missing so from from that from that angle I I would say you know maybe the point to look towards uh, in American history would be the point uh, where you know in the in the data there was the greatest social mobility after the Second World War. Uh, where, you know, the GI Bill uh, and... So you're going uh, back to the New Deal then? You're doing exactly what Fiona Hill... And, well, I, I'm and, saying if you want to have that as part of your messaging. I'm not, I'm not saying that it 100% gets everything right in terms of the actual policy. That, that, are there that, any politicians who get this, um, Eric? I, I saw a headline, interestingly enough, about AOC, who's the pinup yeah. of the left. Uh, there's a headline today that she mocks Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a pinup of the right, another populist for confusing gazpacho and gestapo. It's a classic kind of leftist elitism, making fun of a woman because she doesn't know the difference between gazpacho and the gestapo. Um, what's your take on on the AOC wing of the Democratic Party? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan. Uh, I think that, okay, the most charitable thing I can say about AOC is that I think you know, if you look at a very select element of her argumentation, maybe like she has some ideas about that there's the need for change in the American healthcare system. That, okay, but she also has a lot of ideas that I think would actually be unfair and that a lot of voters would, would reject. You know, things, uh, things like a universal job guarantee, uh, things like, you know, opening up borders to a really larger, much larger extent than they are right now. Even, even arguably, things like uh, a Green New Deal. I'm not sure that uh, the U.S. is is uh, you know quite ready and primed from that. So I I don't think that the AOC approach is at all an effective way to reclaim populism to win back. The right. And I assume you're not a big fan of uh, to Trump. right. And I assume you're not a big fan of Marjorie Taylor no, Greene. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not. No, I, I don't like extremism of, every, of either flavor. That's for sure. Okay, so I, okay, so I buy the premise of your book in a way. Obviously, economic unfairness is profound, and America has become a re, an aristocracy. So mm-hmm. if we're to reclaim populism, you're suggesting we need profound political change. We need reform from above. Um, which is a political challenge, but every yeah. politician I brought up, from Bernie Sanders to AOC to Marjorie Taylor Greene, you've written off. Are there any American politicians who you admire who might be models, pioneers of these reforms that you're talking about? 
Oh, boy. Well, I mean, this is part of the reason why I, I'm worried about the U.S. to a large extent, uh, to be honest. I mean, you know, there are some other leaders in other countries like, uh, you, you know, we have a section on Emmanuel Macron and uh, the president of France in the book. And he's yeah, not exactly popular, Macron. Sorry? I mean, could Macron be an example of of how to do it again? His his political skills seem, you know, he was on the show a few years ago. He's a very nice man. But, oh, really? That's fantastic. Wow. But yeah. um, I Okay, yeah, so, so every time I ask you the question about America, you change the subject and talk about... Yeah, well, it's, because, uh, it's, it's because I, you know, it's, okay, to give a concise answer to your question, are there any, like, prominent political leaders in America that I think are getting it right? No. And I think that, uh, like, that's that's part of the reason why change is, is so badly needed. I think that someone like Emmanuel Macron is the closest uh, to getting that right. He, he does do, you know, he's had missteps, especially around his uh, communications, but his entire platform is, you know, neither right nor left, being non-ideological, emulating the Scandinavian model, uh, trying to reinvest. And in the case of France, there's the need for reinvestment in market competition because uh, that's what hinders social mobility. You know, there are barbers in Paris who have to pay two, who have to do 200 haircuts a month just to pay what they owe to the state in taxes and social security charges. There, that is the key problem that holds back social mobility. It's really hard to get ahead in that kind of system. Um, so so what, so what needs to ha- okay, so I take the point. Let's talk just exclusively. Yeah. Let's end on America because sure, sure. that's the big nut to crack. Yeah, yeah. What has to change in American politics? Where are we going to find... Uh, a dynamic, charismatic leader, uh, an RFK, a JFK, a LBJ, uh, a, um, a Roosevelt for the early 21st century to realize your goal of reclaiming populism. Where is it going to come from? How is it going to happen? Yeah, I mean, again, this is part of the reason why I'm worried. I think it's unlikely, but ultimately somebody's got to step up. Somebody's got to really focus on recognizing that there is a problem. Why, why ultimately does someone have to step up? Why? You just well, say that, but it's because, because I, I don't think the current uh, leadership is is doing a, a sufficient. Yeah, but it's not going to happen, and it, and that reflects the reality of America and its politics. Is it can't just become? Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not a very hopeful situation. That's why I'm saying, you know, it's it's not a hopeful situation. If anything, if you if you want to change, it's it's an outside likelihood. But somebody has got to, you know, there's got to be a, a new kind of leadership. It's, but I, I don't know if it's likely. Yeah, I think you're right, right. about that. Yeah. I agree with you. So you've depressed me, Eric. Yeah, <laughs> I'm you sorry. Wrote reclaiming populism about how economic fairness could win back disenchanted voters. You state the obvious, but you don't come up with a political solution. Maybe well, you need to do that in another book. Have you read any books on this uh, which which try to fix this thing in a political sense? Well, I, I mean, first of all, I'd like to say that I, you know, I disagree with you that that our book doesn't put out a political solution. It's that you know people don't seem to to to, to be able to uh, buy that buy that and, and nail it down. It's, well, it's, it's that like, famous. Do you remember that famous comment from I think it was Jean Richards, the um, the former governor of Texas, and she made a joke about uh, centrists in in Texas. The uh, if 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 you're if you're a centrist in 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 uh, Texas, you're roadkill, and and that's the political <laughs> reality of America, is you do end up as political roadkill. Look at the Manchin or anyone else who tries to veer to the center. So I I just 
don't see how it's yeah, viable. But, 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 I mean, that's part of the problem is that the, the, you know, the extant way of practicing centrism, it's too muddled. It's not clear on exactly what they want to do. It's just sort of like, oh, things are kind of going wrong. Let's make these little fixes around the edges. There's no clear sense of you have to fix social mobility. And these are the things that, that we outline in the book in detail that you've got to fix. And the political way you've got to do it, you've got to get off the social justice bandwagon. You've got to get off the redistribution bandwagon. You've got to focus on investing in equal opportunity and enabling a fair competitive market where people are rewarded according to contribution. And, and you have to have all your messaging and all your policy around that. It's, it's, a, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and there's not enough awareness. It mildly, Eric. And is there any irony that this comes out of Harvard University? And it, I don't know what anything about the growth labs, which is the pinnacle of this new aristocratic system. I mean, is that compatible? <laughs> well, I, I don't I don't know. You know, I, I don't know about uh, maybe maybe you can assign whatever values you want to Harvard as a whole. I'm, I mean, you know, I'm from a middle class family in, in rural Canada originally. So. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it as it comes. Well, you've handled yourself very well, Eric. I appreciate your appearance on the show. Reclaiming Populism, How Economic Fairness Can Win Back Disenchanted Voters. It's an interesting premise. I'm not sure if it comes up with a fix, but maybe there is no fix. Maybe we need revolution. Uh, maybe not. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book, Eric, uh, as America totters on the verge of civil war? Sure. So there's a great book by uh, a friend of mine, actually, uh, Amory Geffen. He's, uh, he's a PhD student of uh, Thomas Piketty at the Paris School of Economics. I've got the French version of the book uh, here, but the English version is uh, Political and Social Cleavages and Inequalities. And it's a fantastically interesting study that catalogs all the uh, different reasons in different countries around the world why there are political and social divisions. Uh, and it's, it's really country specific. It's, it's not just, you know, a single Would he agree with you on your position on taxes or would he be in the Zuckman camp about radically raising taxes? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I can say that in, you know, I, the first event we did with the book was with Thomas Piketty in Paris. It was mm. a really engaging discussion, very thoughtful, but they definitely disagree. They definitely are much good. Further. Well, we like disagreement on this show, Eric, and it's wonderful to have you on. You did a very good job maintaining your call and taking your position. Thank you so much. Best of luck with the book. Maybe we'll get you back with Piketty and we can talk this stuff through in a more political sense. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me.